Dylan, Sam, are you with us? How's it going? What's up? Show up for a book report or something. They're they're tuning in for school. We're excited, excited to, to, uh, uh, to talk to you guys about what's going on in the space. Y'all, if y'all are watching or listening on Spaces, go to YouTube. You can see everyone's beautiful face. We're going to talk about a lot of things, including Bitcoin Magazine Pro, the May Report, some of the most recent issues, and overall what's happening in the market. Um, Dylan, Sam, I guess, do we want to talk about uh, the Bitcoin Magazine Pro product real quick just to get started? Uh, yeah. Sam and I basically put out uh, a, Bitcoin mag- a Bitcoin Magazine-sponsored or Bitcoin Magazine Pro uh, research newsletter. Um, so we're putting that out mostly five days a week, sometimes four, as well as a monthly report uh, at the conclusion of every month, talking about all things macro, Bitcoin, uh, really with a Bitcoin focus, but uh, macro derivatives, mining. Uh, we like to cover it all. And we just uh, I, uh, we just posted our monthly report that we released last week for paid subscribers today. So we should get that pinned at the top of the nest if someone wants to do that. Do we have it pinned already? We got it pinned. Perfect. Sam, how how we living? Dude, we're good. I don't think I can uh, give an introduction like peas, but uh, you know, like Dylan said, um, we're tracking the markets all the time, researching analysis every day on what's happening, Bitcoin markets, charts, data, reports, whatever's going on, uh, trying to make sense of it all. So um, if you like that type of content, check out our Twitter feeds. You can check out the Substack on there. We've got tons of free posts, probably got over like, 90 free posts on here on uh on Substack just talking about the market so definitely check that out i think we both got links in our twitter page or you can click on the latest monthly as well so um it's been i know you could call it maybe a little bit more boring in the markets over the last few weeks a lot of range a lot of consolidation just kind of sitting here um a lot of movement though on some of the macro front so i guess you could say exciting there but bitcoin kind of paused for the last month feels like that's where, yeah, where, that's where all the action is, is commodities, yields. We're talking more about uh, in a Bitcoin letter um, that focuses sometimes uh, on technical aspects, uh, but often focusing just on kind of uh, more pure market dynamics, Bitcoin, the asset. We do talk about Bitcoin, the network as well, uh, um, and kind of do like not, not price analysis, but network analysis. Um, but in terms of price action, you, you know, you could, you could be watching uh, what, what the price of oil is doing or, you know, the VIX. And kind of know where the Bitcoin market's going to be trading at or trading like for, for most of 2022. That's a big point that I just wanted to emphasize is you guys take some time to, to measure on-chain analytics and analyze Bitcoin's on-chain metrics, but you also spend just as much time discussing the real world events and analyzing them through a scope of Bitcoin um, and how they will affect Bitcoin. And I think that will segue perfectly to what I've initially wanted to talk to you guys about it's like dylan and sam can read my mind uh, i want to start with slide number five uh we're going to start right with the treasury yields if if i'm reading this correctly if i'm remembering it correctly this is actually an updated from today correct because we saw yesterday the year the 10-year yield dip below three percent for just a day and now we're back above it talk to us about what a 10-year yield above three percent could mean uh economically and then through the lens of Bitcoin. Sam, kick it off, man. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, this is probably one of the most interesting charts in the space. Everyone uh, in macro is trying to look at this from like a secular 
interest rate trend. Um, obviously, a lot of tech and demographics and population built into falling interest rates over time, which also just coincide with the level of, of cost of capital too built in, baked into uh, not only to Bitcoin, but you know, growth valuations across the board for, for all stocks as well. So um, you know, this this recent rise in interest rates, kind of especially in like long-term duration across the board, um, has coincided essentially right with the fall in assets since November and December. Almost all risk assets, you know, kind of follow the same thing, right? Uh, rates have turned up um, in essence of getting ahead of, of the market in terms of the, the liquidity tide and, and quantitative tightening that's that's coming aboard, but also more recently now, you know, inflation expectations that are getting built into this. So kind of more sticky inflation expectations here as well. Um, I guess the, the tough part in all this is saying, okay, where does this secular trend go next? Are we getting a mean reversion in rates or is it something entirely different, kind of interesting, uh, entering in more of like the stagflation type environment where rates are going to be a lot more volatile and higher? Um, at the end of the day, you know, we've got some of the largest debt to GDP ratios, especially on the public side, um, that we've ever seen and that are continuing to climb against all economies. So. Uh, it almost seems like there, there's a limit to this too, that that rates can't sustain um, that high over time um, just because of the debt service payments and the interest payments that have to be serviced. So, uh, you know, look at this and say, it's certainly one of the kind of fastest accelerations in rates, just showing you the, the volatility and credit that's out there today. Um, and also just kind of uh, over the last year, a big reprice in just inflation expectations. Um, like where is that new kind of mean inflation rate going to be over the next five to 10 years as well? Hey, before you Ooh. jump in, Dylan. Wow, you killed that. Great, absolutely great analysis, Sam. Uh, and again, uh, I would really encourage the folks over at Spaces, go to YouTube. I just pinned the link in the nest, but uh, we are sharing all of these charts. And yeah, I mean, Sam, you really laid it out there. Uh, very clear. And I mean, uh, it's really incredible to just see it in the grand scheme of things, you know, how low rates are, and yet uh, they're just absolutely crushing uh, the wealth effect and everything that, you know, we kind of had rolling previous to this. Uh, Dylan, back to you. Yeah, um, I mean, Sam Sam killed it there, uh, kind of, in, you know, in, encapsulating our thesis um, since since early uh, early Q1, I, I believe, um, and especially, you know, one of our, one of our, uh, monthly reports, which I honestly forget the month, I think it was, it was March, we talked more about, you know, uh, conflict in Ukraine than we did about Bitcoin itself because of some of the kind of uh, implications there, right? Um, we're talking about commodities. I, I believe we had a, I was laughing to myself, we had a wheat chart in a Bitcoin newsletter, um, but it was just, you know, kind of just to map out this ever-changing uh, dynamic with inflation expectations and the shattering uh, of trust and this kind of global order that the, has been in place post Bretton Woods or maybe post 71 with the petrodollar. Um, so much is, is kind of dynamic and ever changing on, on those two ends. Um, and you kind of see an increasing protectionism across the world uh, with trade, um, as well as kind of now recently just the combustion of, of US uh, pr production factories and uh, explosions everywhere, uh, just in domestically. So inflation expectations are definitely embedded in. And I, you know, previously kind of thought the Fed would never get rates at zero. Well, now obviously they're off zero. Um, but I think what really is, is happening is, like Sam said, the establishment of a new higher mean 
in inflation and in rates, but still deeply negative real yields. Because I think ultimately uh, to erode these debt burdens like we're, we're talking about, you need negative real yields for a sustained period of time. It's financial repression and it's mathematically the only way out of this debt. So I think that's, you know, Fed, the Fed could implement yield curve control at, at 3% or, or 3.5% if it came down to it, um, you know, on the other side of potentially this demand destruction bust that seems to be in the making. Um, so a lot of prob probabilities, possibilities going forward, but they all don't end well, and they all end with some form of additional easing at the end of this. I believe uh, the monthly report you were actually mentioning was the Mar March monthly report, which prompted me to, I kid you not, add wheat to my watch list, and I have since been trading wheat very successfully so thank you very very much sir <laughs> to gen trading wheat yeah i mean commodities have been up only not just wheat um look at anything i have a commodities kind of ticker i go through and all the charts look like shitcoin parabolic charts <laughs> it's like you know that's where the capital's going the supply shortage i'm curious and and we don't need to like spend too much time but like, what are three or four of the commodities you're paying attention to? I'm assuming wheat and oil are two of them. What are some others? Well, yeah, I mean, wheat just, I mean, in general, just food prices, but um, whether you're looking at like livestock, um, whether you're looking at, I like looking at monetary metals as well. Um, I mean, gold is trading, like not really doing anything, but it's essentially gold is a bet on, on uh, negative real yields. It trades kind of inverse to, to real yields. Um, so that's been not doing much, but like copper, really just anything. And like, look at the the commodities price production index. It's fifty. It's I think it's twenty percent year over year, Sam. If that's correct. Um, so like, and and zoom out is pretty historic. Yeah, I mean, I even think in terms of like the Thomson Reuters total commodities index that we're tracking is is just forty percent year to date as well. Um, and then I think, you know, interesting too, I mean, uh, oil can tell a lot in terms of where, where it is today and in, in more of like a macro sense, not necessarily diving into like food fertilizer as well, like potash prices and, and things that are going into like longer term, you know, maybe crop yields on the horizon, um, which is, is definitely out of my depth, but one chart that Dylan's posted a while ago, I remember from like a research shop, I think you even tweeted in reply to that before, is just like the level of oil price related to its deviation um, and the chances of like a probability of a recession playing out. So now we're getting back into this territory where oil prices have deviated uh, well above, you know, kind of this, this mean they've been at and typically um, that's been a growing like probable sign of a recession that's on the horizon um, and has been like a consistent factor in what we've seen over the last, you know, five, six bigger, larger recessions at play as well. It's pretty funny because I think once you saw that, like the, that energy trend, you saw the yield curve inversion, which has predated every recession, I think the last, uh, you know, 60 years, um, it preceded the ones before that as well, just one false reading. Um, you basically you basically knew a recession's coming, and you see like the Atlanta Fed just kind of every single uh, projection they have for real GDP is declining, and they still think it's going to be like a positive two percent uh, real GDP for 2022. Um, but, but there's I, I would say there's no chance. Uh, maybe in, in nominal terms for sure, but not in real terms. And so, um, I mean, a recession. I think we're kind of already at the start of one. It's just a matter of you know 
housing eventually will turn down. Um, you'll see inventory there. You'll see you'll see the price of oil probably reach extraordinary heights, but crash down again. It's just a matter of how much of a deflationary bust can the fiat system handle, and eventually it needs a backstop. And so, you know, there's a lot of factors, and and how how bad does it get? No one knows, but uh, it always ends ugly. First with kind of inflationary credit credit bu- uh, booms, and now you know the deflationary credit bust is, you know, not upon us yet, but it is underway. I mean, it is insane to think about how uh, commodity prices could go up, up and up, and because of that, destroy demand, destroy any sort of production. And then from there, slide back down because of that, that destruction of industry and productivity. A scary scenario is, and, you know, one that's, you know, definitely likely um, just, just due to the, the status of the world is a lot of, for like, for example, for wheat, uh, it's, it's demand is pretty inelastic to the, to the price point. Right. There's a reason that there's, uh, you know, riots in the Middle East in 2010s is because of, of the, the wheat prices and the bread, the bread costs. And so uh, the social unrest that's that's going to come from the other side of all of this inflation and eventually a slowdown in the business cycle is going to be something that, you know, leads to increasing not just in the U.S., but populism around the world um, division and and kind of, you know, that ends with political promises. Uh, with fiat, right? This is, this is like, you know, the stuff like student debt cancellations. It's not like, it's not one side's fault or the other, but it's just kind of a trend around the world. Uh, One with the wealth disparity between like, say the boomers and the millennials, uh, but, you know, also kind of the left and right. Like this, this is because we're in the end stages of, of this debt super cycle, in my opinion. Um, But there's a lot of factors there. Yeah, I would, I would just add to it's certainly like a lot of talk in terms of like the inflationary pressures, the stagflation that's upon us. But I mean, probably the, the worst pill to swallow is the disinflationary kind of deflationary market regime that follows for that. Um, the real demand destruction, kind of real pain on consumers that have to go through. Um, and it's almost kind of like now in the inflation that we're at, you try to look at like a lot of different metrics you know, I look at a lot of United States metrics as a proxy for like consumer sentiment of where we are. Um, and so now you're starting to see like consumer spending adjusted for inflation is, is negative. Uh, it's, you know, falling in, in real terms kind of year on year over the last couple of months. Uh, you've just got inflation outpacing wages. So you've got pressure on real wages. You've got the personal savings rate. Um, at kind of its lowest level since 2008. And you've got also like a pretty massive growth in, in consumer credit at the same time. So when you start seeing all of that playing out and then you start to like check in on some of these high level earnings calls when it's like Walmart, Target or some of these tech companies and starting to see kind of earnings turnover as well. Um, definitely inflation in front of us right now seems like it's going to continue. Um, and maybe it's turning over on, on some metrics, but it's at least going to remain vastly elevated for the rest of the year. But then what's to follow after that in terms of disinflationary where, where growth is not keeping up and kind of consumers can't afford those prices is, is where you get pushed into that recession territory. And that's when, you know, we talked about kind of more of a macro thesis where you start thinking of like the monetary and the fiscal policy that has to follow um, to help, you know, sustain because no economy or, or government wants to sustain in a deep recession. Um, 
So, you know, kind of forward looking, that's, that's probably a year and a half year to two years away, maybe, maybe even quicker with some of how this stuff uh, plays out. One of the, another interesting thing. Yeah. Q, go ahead, man. You got it. I dude, I'm here to listen to you if anything, Dylan. So whatever you wanted to say, you say, <laughs> all right. Um, the, the Japanese yen or really the strength of the dollar uh, is kind of another factor here. Um, but for the longest time, we've seen like relative uh, debasement and devaluation of fiat currencies. And now it looks like, you know, the BOJ who's had a you know pretty big demographics problem for the last few decades uh, and was the first central bank regime to actually implement uh, quantitative easing uh, to suppress these yields uh, is now implementing full on yield curve control at, at I believe, 25 bips uh, on their bond market. Uh, and the bond market's doing like no offer. And because of this, just, um, you know, yield curve control, the, the yen is actually at the lowest, uh, the lowest spot it's been against the dollar in 20 years, about to break down further uh, to the lowest points in the, since 1998. Uh, and, and, you know, pretty close to being uh, the highest ever against the dollar. And so uh, these, these things structurally for the global economy, um, you know, not so much Japan, but you know, a lot of these emerging market pairs against the dollar, you can look at the, you know, the Dixie, the dollar index, the higher that goes, uh, the more the world just gets thrown into recession um, and, and, you know, the global slowdown accelerates. Um, so, you know, it's obviously a relative game and the dollar is still devaluing, you know, very, you know, an accelerating fashion against real goods and services. But, uh, you know, this kind of relative game between uh, sovereigns and, and currencies is really interesting. You bring up something really interesting, Dylan, the fact that if you look at the DXY chart, it looks as though the dollar is stronger than ever, as though the dollar is the best currency compared to the other basket of currencies that are being measured in the DXY. However, like you have to stop and think for a moment that while we have inflation, all of these other currencies use the dollar to some degree, and so they're using a, an inflating asset that they themselves are measuring their own currency that is also inflating. So it's almost as though the dollar is not strengthening in my opinion, but rather it is diminishing slower than the other currencies. I don't know if that's something that either of you would agree with or not. Yeah, it makes sense. And, and uh, <laughs> you know, it's also like max pain because financial asset values are falling at the same time, right? And so obviously like, you know, the uh, you know, upper class, or you know, elites that hold all the assets can can you know stand to see the portfolio fall fifty percent and still live a, a you know high standard of living. But just in terms of like the total economy, uh, it's definitely kind of a, a worst case scenario, and we're you know hurling into a into an economic slowdown. While you know the the feds and officials are still saying we have a strong economy, like watching the Biden administration. I'm not even sure what uh, what her name was, but she was saying like with a straight face that. The economy is better than, than than it usually is, and it's like, yeah, we're we're, we're not really doing too hot. <laughs> uh, I want to pull up slide number three where you guys have taken the price of crude oil, and I mean, it, there's nothing complicated about this. It's just a a reminder that what these political leaders may be saying or or the mouthpieces that they speak through may not actually be what is happening in real time i mean look i went to costco of all places expecting to get cheap gas and it was just 10 cents below six dollars a gallon here in california so it is over as far as i'm concerned like we will see a new all-time high in oil um and i'm curious 
what or what are the first things that will get impacted with crude oil prices reaching new all-time highs if and when that does happen in your guys' Well, so, so, so Q and NCK, we need to know, uh, you know, from the locals, have you, uh, you know, not driven your car around as much because of high gas prices or, I don't or what? I do car. So I don't uh, own a car. I borrow either my girlfriend's car or my dad's truck. <laughs> like, I, like I, I'm a nice guy. So I will like, if I borrow your car, you'll get it back with a full tank of gas every single time. And it's getting to a point where it's cheaper for me to just Uber everywhere than borrow anyone's fucking car anymore. Uh, gas is about to hit $7 at my cheap gas station in San Francisco. And I am gearing up to do a cross country road trip. So uh, Outlook is looking expensive for me. Uh, really poor timing on my uh, cross state, cross country road trips uh, during the the gas volatility. It seems like I really catch the trips every time it's spiking up again. And uh, you know, I'm excited to drive east because I think the gas is going to get cheaper as I uh, escape California. But it's pretty gnarly these days. Love to hear it. I literally spent two hours yesterday, like muted on spaces i spent two hours yesterday just with some wrenches and actually fixed my old mountain bike that i deemed was unrideable anymore because spending money on gas is unforeseeable for my future to say the least but like like i talked just about this too much Sam. dj and trading q no it's lay not off that. on the leverage so you don't have to leverage I'm not, i am money. on no leverage whatsoever not yet at least dylan assured me that when we're supposed to go all in i would get an alert from him and we would go full blown leverage, and then we're gonna. Ne- you're never gonna hear from Toad and I again. But one thing that I kind of want to—I asked Sam this. So Sam, you do not have to answer, Dylan. You can't punt the question to Sam. I asked him last week while you were moving. We saw earnings reports from both Target and Walmart talk about the rising cost of gas impeding their bottom line, and then you actually saw a different company, Dollar Tree, a week later report and say, "Actually, dude, we're doing great." my conclusion at least is both walmart and target are trying to expand into delivery and so they're starting to really feel the impact of gas by expanding their offerings do you foresee a scaling back of some COVID offerings such as online retail free delivery etc as a result of this Uh, I mean, I don't know. I, I know that the VC tech bubble subsidization model is effectively popped. I mean, not entirely, but, you know, <laughs> half the reason that you had you had cheap DoorDash or Uber or whatever other, you know, app that was supposedly a technology, but really was just a scale of a previous business model uh, was just subsidized by VC money that only looked at revenue numbers and, and didn't even care if it was profitable, right? Like Uber, Lyft, uh, just... The, the VC craziness, like you had uh, a scooters app, I think like Bird or, or one of the scooter apps went public at like a billion dollar valuation down 90%. Um, that's all done, right? So it's also, yeah, it's, it's like the skyrocketing energy prices, but it's, and your, you know, corporate margins getting impacted, but you also have, you know, these un- unprofitable, co- profitability is going to matter once again, um, if money is not uh, you know, it, it still is with negative real yields, but money's not like entirely free anymore. <laughs> you know, and assets assets aren't up only. Yeah, and just to maybe add on to that in a different light, in terms of like Walmart and Target, and I was just looking at that 
EPS earnings per share for in over the last quarter for like consumer uh, discretionary companies like these is down like 15% and earnings are getting hit pretty hard. Margins are getting hit pretty hard. Um, a big issue with that too has been like the inevitable supply chain issue, kind of the mismatch, the mismatch of like demand and supply. And now, uh, you know, Walmart and Target have loaded up on huge, massive increases in inventory. So, you know, their inventory has gone up 30, 40%. Um, going back to that kind of consumer talking points before, consumers been hit incredibly hard. Um, so you might get this like disinflationary pressure in goods happening that are going to kind of further kind of spiral into impacting earnings per share. But a good point on like the delivery and the transportation. I mean, that's probably where oil prices are going to shock the economy the most, whether that's kind of delivery transportation you're talking about for those specific services in those businesses while they're already facing kind of like this rise in inventory that they're not going to be able to push out to consumers at higher prices. Um, but then also like we talked about before, just like the, the summer impacts of traveling and transportation and um, I mean, if you look at a plane ticket now versus when you did six months ago, it's probably almost double in price anywhere you want to go as well. So uh, just kind of further impacting on like consumer spending and sentiment as a whole. And ultimately, like that's pushed consumer sentiment down. Like you look at the Michigan Consumer Index, that's pushed consumer sentiment down to like 2007, 2008 lows. Um, and and, that, and those, that sentiment kind of followed the great financial crisis and crash already. And so we're already kind of at those sentiment lows without what I would say is like a major fall, um, whether it's in wealth or impact, um, which is totally, you know, driven completely by eight and a half percent kind of persistent inflation. So I want to ask through this lens of, you know, the cheap capital that we've seen over the last two years, one industry that has also taken great advantage of this has been Bitcoin miners. And they have been able to, for some time at least, hold every single Bitcoin that they mined. However, we saw reports last week, two different Bitcoin miners, one of them being Riot, actually has now started to have to sell. And they sold at an average price of about $30,000 a Bitcoin. I'm curious for your guys' opinions or thoughts just on seeing at least two miners now change the script. And then there are reports coming out that actually this is not just in the public sector, but all across miners are starting to actually sell more than they are holding. Yeah, Core Scientific also uh, sneakily sold uh, 1.5K BTC. Uh, they always report it on the top of their monthly reports, uh, their monthly updates, production updates. And then um, they didn't report it at the top of this time and it was actually 1,500 $1, less and they only highlighted how much they mined that month, which was like 1,100. And so, um, you know, a lot of the miners are getting beat up uh, with Sam and I's kind of other job, uh, you know, tangential to what we do with the uh, UTXO management. We've been taking a look at some minor valuations um, and they're getting obviously a lot more interesting uh, when they're at, you know, kind of 2021, you know, they're at, they're at lows not seen in, in Bitcoin terms since 2020. Um, so, you know, it's, I think fire sale conditions on, on, company valuations as well as ASICs are going to come the lower that hash price goes, which is just, uh, you know, it's minor revenues divided by hash rate. So price has been in a, in a bear market for six months or so now, while hash rate has been in somewhat of a bull market and tapered off recently. Um, you know, hash rate is still, I think, 25% higher than it was peak of, of uh, before the China Marnie ban and price is halved. So I think, you know, these miners margins are just starting to get squeezed, but still, 
uh, a lot of these public miners are still immensely profitable. Uh, the margins just aren't, you know, 90% anymore. They're just 60% or 50%. Uh, the production costs are still around 10, 12K. So there's still a lot, actually a lot of room for more kind of, uh, you know, squeeze. But the reality is this squeeze, you know, difficulty going up, as hash rate go, is going up, is essentially that, that production cost of Bitcoin just rising, ever rising. So yeah, it, it, it kind of squeezes the balance sheets of inefficient or weak miners or, you know, the weakest first. But really what it's doing is it's that, it's that production cost of this monetary commodity just ratcheting up over time. And eventually, you know, that, that production cost and the market value of one Bitcoin will be a lot higher than 30,000 um, because of its supply and elasticity and scarcity and because of that production cost dynamics. But, you know, it ebbs and flows and we're in kind of one of those downturn periods, not only in Bitcoin and, and the Bitcoin mining cycle, but also just, you know, the economic cycle and the cost of capital cycle. Um, it's also interesting when we're talking about like the Fed and inevitably cutting or the deflationary bust, like the euro dollar futures curve, which is essentially like a, a, the interest rate uh, or the Fed funds rate futures. Um, it's it's had the Fed cutting in 2023 for months now. It's it's I mean it still is it still predicts them uh, to start cutting and easing into the market, but it, it's been like that for a while, um, and it's just kind of the curve it's, itself has bumped up a little bit as inflation has ripped um, post Ukraine crisis, but. But still, they're still expecting kind of uh, them to walk back some of those those cuts uh, in 2023 and into 2024. Um, so, so you know the the smart money, um, even though a lot of you know, bond traders, the bond market was was pretty wrong about inflation. The smart money, the big money, the institutional money has been betting on a, a Fed easing cycle in 2023 for a while. On the uh, on the mining front, uh, Dylan said it really well. I I, I would add to. Um, taking just like core scientific specifically, not to just hone in on, on one particular miner. Um, I guess one of the things that came up in their, their latest earnings call as well, their executive team was talking about is just the difficulty in terms of capital formation and, 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 uh, and kind of growing capital and finding capital in the market right now. And so that's, that's pretty consistent with a lot of what we've seen and just tightening financial conditions um, and kind of like rising spreads of credit from where treasuries are right now. And so definitely have this period in the bull cycle. We have cheaper rates uh, where miners can go out and source some, some debt expansion or when their equity valuations weren't you know, 75, 80% from all time highs, you can, can raise uh, extra capital in that way too. Um, and now you kind of have a turning point where all that is getting tight. Uh, you know, e Equities are likely not to, to bounce uh, until we see kind of probably bigger drawdown in, in the broader equity market specifically for like minor equities or till we see some maybe bigger level of capitulation in the space as well as kind of like a proxy or signal that that things have kind of bottomed or gotten worse. Um, but that's a big part too, is in a lot of these hash rate expansion plans that are slated for the rest of the year and are still, you know, for the public miners, because, you know, their production cost is so low, um, they're still unfolding and they're still taking place. And some of them have cut back some of the hash rate expansion, but a lot of these are about to come on line or slated to over the next six months, which is like a, you know, maybe an average five X in terms of whether hash rate is today and where it's going to be tomorrow. Um, so that's kind of a, an interesting note there. I, I think it just goes back to like, you know, it's a smart move as a public miner to kind of build your Bitcoin holding war chest during bull market times and when it's good. Um, and naturally, if you don't have that kind of equity or debt, uh, you're going to have to be selling your production Bitcoin. So it's kind of natural to be selling that anyway, if you don't have that capital coming from elsewhere, 
Um, and still, you know, that said right now, the, there's a couple of miners that have sold or sold more production Bitcoin or like core sold out of like a larger treasure position, even though they've got like 9K Bitcoin. Um, but there's still a lot that are like still growing their balance. Um, and so we'll see over the, the next few months how that shakes out. I think, you know, probably right now in terms of like minor capitulation, we're closer to when you have miners have a lot of S9 machines and they make up 25% of the network and you're, and you're a lot closer to this break-even cost for miners. And, and you know, um, that said, we've seen kind of hash rate come down from an all-time high this year from like 226x hash down to like 211%. So still it's up like 20, 25% of the year. Um, but still in a period right now, we're waiting for a lot of like mega hash rate expansion to come online in the second half of the year. And you're getting in that price risk though, of like these sustained prices that you're going to start to see probably some capitulation play out. Bring it on. I need to scoop up some ASICs and some, uh, some public codes. I'm, I'm, I know we're just speculating here. So, so forgive the smooth brain questions, but you know, six months ago we were talking about the expectations for a lot of these companies and the lofty goals they set for how many, uh, how much hash rate they were going to expand to. We've started to see them start to scale these numbers back. Do you think that we will continue to see that? Or do you think that we're maybe on pace to get to what the current estimates look like? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the, the thing is that they have to plug them in, right? Like they have the, they have the ASICs. Um, I think that was, you know, post-China uh, mining ban liquidation of, of ASICs and a lot of kind of transition. The ASICs were, you know, not abundant, but, the, you know, you can finally get them. They have the deliveries by now, or for most of them. Um, but, you know, really, they just need to plug them in. Uh, and also with, with energy prices, I mean, a lot of these companies have contracts, but just in general, energy prices... Uh, in general, the hash price, which is at 11 or 12 cents, the bottom of 2020 was it was like seven, seven, eight cents uh, per terawatt. Uh, essentially now, or I'm sorry, per terahash. But I think now uh, you're going to see kind of just still uh, more, yeah, more of a capitulation. And 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 if Bitcoin's price goes any lower, right, as hash rate just stays the same, which hash rate is still going to be be increasing, the, the margins and the Bitcoin. Uh, denominated value of the ASICs and these public companies are, are going to continue to fall, right? Like the, the headwinds are Bitcoin's price really has to appreciate hard. Um, and, you know, uh, that, that requires, you know, monetary easing essentially at this point um, for, for these miners to turn around. I, I think you're going to have a buying opportunity in the miners and ASICs before the Fed, you know, I'm not saying it's all determined on the Fed, but uh, you know, there's there there's a decent chance that you kind of see some fire sale prices on certain aspects of the market. Okay, Dylan, you have two jobs now on top of all the other things that you do. But you're supposed to tell me when we go all in on leverage, and when we're going to go all in on some basics. <laughs> Never go all in, but all right, I'll <laughs> uh, I'll let you know. Um, the I number wanna... one rule of, of Bitcoin allocation, by the way, if you don't know. Uh, as in not UQ, but just everybody, uh, you, you gotta, you gotta internalize this is never become a forced seller. Right. So, I mean, that should be your rule, regardless of if you're trading on a 10 minute time frame or, you know, you're leveraging your, your entire stack to, you know, buy a house or whatever it is, right. Like understand the risks, understand that all price points, even for a split second, you know, a 50% drop is possible. Is it probable? No. But like, don't rule it out and never become a forced seller, especially if it's, your, you know, your entire stack, your golden goose, like that's the worst option. That 
advice so much that I had to tell our video editors to clip it for later. So apologies for that. I want to now switch over, unless there's anything else we want to talk about, uh, to switch over to some on-chain analysis that you guys have done and put together. Um, we're taking a question from the crowd. Sam, you have a fan in the crowd who wants to know what is your favorite chart and why? That's hilarious. So Joe Rogers, uh, I think it's at Joe Rogers on Twitter, who works for BM, probably asks me this every day, um, either on person or Slack. I tell him that usually price my favorite chart, but uh, it's going down. So hash rate's going up. So that's my favorite as of late. Um, but maybe as a fun one aside, I say fun. This is probably not the word to describe this. On my Twitter, and we put in one of our posts on Monday, is and we can get to the on-chain stuff post this um is the s p 500 returns after major peaks and so it's a little bit of a scary chart it's a it's a pretty bearish chart if you're thinking about like where we are and the economic cycle today and where we could be based on looking at just the great recession um and the dot-com bubble um and and COVID as well through COVID in there for fun it's not necessarily the comparison trying to make but just trying to outlay like this type of scenario when you're thinking about equities or Bitcoin markets today that you know if we've gone into this kind of more structural bear market as we've done many times before and we're going into this like kind of we painted this very dire economic picture before then I think it's important to note that there's a lot of convincing bear market rallies along the way in markets. And, and that doesn't mean that, you know, through Bitcoin's time, it, it, it might unfold into something else and how it's traded in markets and what's happening. Um, but I think this was like good charts. And this is actually an updated analysis from, uh, um, from Larry at the block that he did a while ago. So, so we just kind of threw our update on there, but it's a good way to say that like, you know, be prepared for these worst case scenarios. Um, and to Dylan's point that don't be forced sellers, bear market rallies are, are super convincing. Uh, it's going to be hard to say when the turning point in the cycle happens, um, but everything from like our research suggests and kind of our baseline view is that, you know, things, things get worse before they get better here. I feel like you're trying to tell me that when I call 28K as the floor that I'm going to be wrong, but I'm going to, I'm going to hold true. I'm 28K gang strong. Well, I mean, the thing is like the Bitcoin native uh, market dynamics are, are pretty strong or the best they've looked I mean, risk reward wise in a while um, and just in terms of the derivative market, completely de-risking. Uh, I mean, it did it once in 2021 uh, in the summer bear market. It actually, you know, funding and, and derivatives market markets were trading in backwardation briefly, briefly meaning futures below uh, spot price. Uh, the negative funding rate means that shorts were piling in. Uh, um, to, to kind of drive price of derivatives under the price of spot markets. Uh, we don't see that as much today, but it's very neutral. Uh, all of the collateral is not Bitcoin, it's stable coins. So like liquidation risks, like we saw in March of 2020, aren't there. Uh, the on-chain, the hodling dynamics are increasingly strong. Like we can go from the most basic metrics, like we talk about a lot, just because it's easy. You know, Bitcoin held supply, percent of supply held for one year at all-time highs of 66%, or like the, the most, you know, kind of in-depth, uh, of, our, of the HODL metrics that combine a bunch of different variables, they all have been increasingly strong and the best they've looked since 2020. But it's like, you know, market Bitcoin is trading as it's trading because not of its native HODL dynamics or uh, derivatives, derivative markets de-risking. It's, it's basically just, you know, the USD denominator is in charge. Um, and Bitcoin is as a monetary asset, that's not the global reserve currency 
with a bunch of its, you know, native uh, denominated debt, which is why the dollar trades how it does, right? Because like the whole world has dollar denominated debt is short the dollar. Um, the dollar has that kind of native demand that Bitcoin is sold off to, uh, to kind of fill, right? Um, and so I think um, essentially how you, how you want to think about it is, is you know, there, there could be worse tailwinds for Bitcoin, but it's not going to be, it's going to be, it's probably a steady bleed. Uh, maybe you're not, you're going to have multiple opportunities to kind of, you know, probably buy the bottom, I would say. It's not going to, it's not, it's not going to be some devastating 50% awake and recovery like you saw in COVID. Um, and so, you know, limited orders are your friend, like don't, don't sell the stack to try to snipe a bottom, but just a DCA approach is good. If you want to get leverage exposure, like obviously you need to understand the risk reward, the interest rates, et cetera. Um, but, you know, you can average into uh, a small amount of, you know, of leverage or of borrowing uh, if, that, if that's what you, you fancy, as long as you can, you know, not sell if it goes to 20K, right? Is it probable? Uh, in my opinion, no, I don't think it is. But is it possible? 100%. And so, you know, we, we talk about it. I mean, we're objective about, you know, Bitcoin positioning. We understand although some of our readers are like near 100% allocated um, or, you know, even some are, you know, have a 2% allocation. And so, you know, right now is a great time to increase that um, from all the Bitcoin native metrics that we see you know, cycle to cycle, but also just, you know, where we are and how, how a dollar cost averaging approach can, can be managed with volatility. Like that's, you know, for most people, that's the best option. I'd love it. So we have on the screen right now, the uh, Bitcoin percent of circulating supply charts that you guys shared with us. And I'd love it if you guys can maybe talk about uh, what you're seeing in both of these charts, but more specifically in the bottom one. That's the one that to me at least seems most intriguing, but maybe I'm just dumb and after the top one is where I should be paying more attention to. Yeah, I can kind of give a little bit of overview of this. Essentially, it's the same chart. Uh, so it's just, you know, you've got the top chart here, it's just broken down by ages, right? And then the bottom one is just that aggregate amount. Um, so if you think about it here, I mean, this has been a pretty popular chart in Bitcoin for a while and kind of the original on-chain analysis is just these kind of hodl waves. Um, and so here, uh, essentially what this chart says is, you know, 83.83% of the circulating supply hasn't moved in over three months. It's being held. Um, and then as you go through these different bands of kind of where Bitcoin is in terms of uh, that it hasn't been moved on the UTXO set, hasn't been sent or received, you can sign and see the different percent of supply that makes up. So um, say like, let's say 83% of supply hasn't moved in over three months. Well, you can see that like 12.86% of that is supply that hasn't moved in more than 10 years. So, you know, that's Satoshi's coins, that's um, lost coins at that, that angle too. So, um, but I mean, and largely with both these shows, I think one, uh, Bitcoin's like HODL profile as an asset. I mean, largely there's, it, after like 2013, there's very little deviation in terms of this being like 70 to 80% of, of supply being held more, more than three months. Um, but I think also what you see is like with these peaks and valleys is like these natural distribution and kind of accumulation cycles in Bitcoin's histories too, relative to price. So typically what you see is in these mega price runs up, run ups like July, 2021, we see some of this dip maybe from like 83 to like 75% of being held as people sell coins that they've been holding on to, taking some profits um, as new buyers are in. And then what you also see too uh, is that like rising in accumulation. And that's kind of what we're seeing now, right? The max of this means that 85% of supply over time has not moved in over three months. 
we're close to that where we are now as people kind of pick up more accumulating supply and hold it for longer for a kind of more long-term cycles. Um, and I think what's also interesting to note, we wrote a piece a while this back then is just in terms of like capitulation, you would think like, okay, if the market is really terrible uh, and you should see like a massive selling or massive change in the percent of supply that hasn't moved. And really it's, it's, uh, it's not that much. Like you see some movements in here, but you see largely for the most part, long-term holders of Bitcoin are, are holding it like through its monetization phase. So um, I think this is kind of what it's showing. And as coins age through these different bands, right? You held it, you held Bitcoin for your six months. Okay, now you're gonna be in this six month to 12 month kind of time frame, um, And then you age in. So you kind of see this growth in coins of aging into these, uh, these longer time frames as well. Yeah, I mean, and the supply and elasticity of Bitcoin works, like works both ways, right? Because you have this huge huddle dynamic you know, people are like just not going to sell or, you know, press, press sell once they buy it. They're just, even if it's on exchanges or whatnot, you know, one, one trader with like a few hundred million dollars has been the Bitcoin market for the last five days. <laughs> it's just one guy on FTX just, is just twapping, you know, time-weighted average price averaging. You can see it in the open interest on the chart on FTX perps. And he's just one guy. I mean, it could be a couple of funds, but like, it, that's the market. It's no, there's there's not really any sellers. If you sold for macro fears, uh, you or you know the Luna implosion, and you had to liquidate your crypto portfolio or whatever it is, or you unwound your your basis trade because you're a Wall Streeter, like you've already probably sold Bitcoin because of the macro concerns. And like I don't expect that S and P 500 or Nasdaq correlation to just go away entirely if S, if SBX draws down. Um, just because of, you know, you have, you have kind of with institutions, you have those algo correlations and whatnot. But the reality is like, in terms of supply and plebs hands, it's pretty, it's pretty tight. And like, it's going to get tighter. And eventually, you know, like we say, eventually the marginal sellers turn to marginal buyers, right? Like, and it's because it's true, but in a structural, you know, liquidity tied bear market, uh, you know, where all risk assets are getting purged, it's going to be really tough. For Bitcoin to rally, rally hard, just given how big of a market it is. But it's supply and elasticity. You know, that's that's also why it rips as it does after these kind of consolidation periods are over, or after you know the derivative market that's trying to correlate it with the S and P five hundred gets completely completely caught off sides, right? And Bitcoin, you know, has a, has a decoupling day, like middle of Russia Ukraine conflict when Bitcoin was up like sixteen percent, and that and like the equity market was was flatter down. It was because like, you know, the spot selling had, had, had dissipated, it stopped, but like people trying to correlate it with the S and P following a geopolitical event, shorted it into the ground and they all got, you know, they all became forced buyers way higher. Right. So there's moments that like that, that will happen again. Um, and, you know, eventually like there's, there's no more sellers of this thing and the plebs keep buying it up. We know how it ends. And like, we sound like a broken drum, but that's just, you know, that's the reality of it. I wanted to ask you guys this question as the final question. So maybe there's another thing to ask before this, but there's an assumption in all of your analysis that that you guys explained very well, I think in the most recent uh, BM Pro issue that you put out, where the assumption you have is Bitcoin is the best asset to essentially invest in longer term. Uh, I'm curious, we were talking earlier with Bitcoin Gandalf about you know what was sort of that that one inkling, that thing that got you into Bitcoin before you just went down this rabbit hole and realized what this actually is and the potential of it. Uh, I present to each of you 
curious, what was that thing? For me personally, it was absolute scarcity and either of you can steal it, but only one of you can. Well, yeah, I would say we, we don't think it's the best uh, investment asset. We think it's the best monetary asset. I mean, that's our, that's our thesis. Um, and you can think of it as a monetary commodity, like, like gold, right? It's just a, it's just a, a fungible asset with a production cost. Um, you know, typically those have served as, as money before the fiat currency era and Bitcoin kind of solved for the ills of fiat combined for solving for the ills of gold uh, into a tech, the best technology we've seen. That's our stance. And it's a pretty neutral one. Obviously we, we evaluate it from like a financial asset perspective uh, and, you know, follow and document like emerging narratives. But at the end of the day, it's just Bitcoin is the best money. Uh, and the, the price performance is the expectation after, you know, that thesis has is arrived upon. Um, so I'd say, yeah, I mean, the absolute scarcity, but really for me, it's, I think the Satoshi's genius was uh, the difficulty adjustment. Like the rest of, of Bitcoin is probably like already kind of figured out um, or like built, built out Satoshi. Like, you know, we had the hash cash, we had the encryption. Um, elliptic curves and Satoshi came in and combined it all together and then threw in a difficulty adjustment to, to solve for like basically Moore's law uh, and, and you know, the, the increasing um, computational performance of, of computers. And so, you know, the difficulty adjustment, that's the secret sauce in my opinion. Uh, and when I understood that, that's when I kind of went all in on, on Bitcoin uh, as a financial asset. Uh, that's my back, background, I guess. Yeah. Um, I mean, Dylan said it pretty well, and he's also left out a piece that, you know, when we kind of interviewed for the role here, we talked about analysis and doing analysis around is, um, and Dylan's got a great piece on this. It's been shared a number of times in the community. Is Sam, let me yourself. So what I was saying is uh, one piece that uh, Dylan and I share a lot of common ground on and thinking about in terms of the macro framework is certainly like Ray Dalio's conclusion of the long-term debt cycle and thinking it from a, a macro credit cycle and these things through history and then how that's played out and what people have done in response to that. And that's, you know, seek uh, refugee from refuge from their kind of fiat debasing currencies, seek refuge from the carnage that's playing out. Um, and kind of this first time where we have this conclusion of a long-term debt cycle, where you're looking for hard, scarce assets that people are going to be attracted to coincides exactly with the time with Bitcoin's rise as this competition to money, to state money that we've had for the first time. So I see it as this grand experiment that is playing out that brought me to it from a lot of economic interest and incentives that were in the protocol. I think at the same time too, when you think that could be a possibility, studying a lot of the adoption data, whether you're looking at like addresses, wallets, users, um, S-curve adoption trends and network effects, and, you know, maybe it's a cliche at this point in the crypto space, Metcalf's law, I, I would say that's actually playing out in Bitcoin, not so sure about where it's playing out, um, out anywhere else, but kind of seeing those S-curve adoptions playing out in real time and saying, okay, we have this first uh, kind of competitive decentralized money to the state. Uh, there seems to be an interest and a need for that in terms of the broader macro cycle and the broader kind of like centralization, decentralization kind of trust and institution cycles that we're in. And at the same time, you're kind of seeing this incredible adoption unfold over the last 10 years. So a lot of those piece points together led me to believe that, you know, this, not just from an ideological or like value standpoint, but from a practical standpoint that, um, that Bitcoin is kind of the, the money of the future. This is incredible. I'm not going to steal more of your time. I just want to remind everyone that if you even so much is 
uh, enjoyed, learned, or just, you know, want to stay up to date with Dylan and Sam, you should absolutely be subscribed to Bitcoin Magazine Pro. There's a free version of it. There's no excuse. Their analysis is so on point. You will only get smarter by reading it. Uh, I will let the two of you uh, shill yourselves, though. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know if I have much else to say, but I appreciate everyone tuning in. Uh, yeah, check us out. We, uh, it's in the nest. It's in my bio, BitcoinMagazinePro.com. Uh, we'll catch you next time we do this most Wednesdays. Uh, and I think next Wednesday, Sam will be on break, but uh, yeah, I'm going to try to get a, get a guest or, uh, I don't know, maybe a, you know, a different team or something. Or not a different team. I love you guys, but uh, someone else to join the stage. <laughs> I am so hurt and offended right now. Someone call Will Clement. Just get him in for next week. That's our show. Thank you so much for hanging out with us. But before we do, I've got to do the things that pay the bills and you know, have me keep a job. So first things first, if you have not already, buy your tickets to Bitcoin 2023. We have not released when it will be, where it will be, who will be speaking, nothing. You know what? I'm going to announce a speaker right now. One speaker. I'm going to get fired for this maybe. But David Bailey will be speaking at Bitcoin 2023. I can't believe you just did that. It's fucked up, bro. Um, locking your tickets now prices are going to go up next week you had to travel to Miami you're going to have to travel to wherever it is next year so just do it lock it in guys come hang out with us come party come to Bitcoin Disneyland and of course if you have not yet already gotten your copy of the print version of Bitcoin Magazine lock it in right now we're going to do a quick dramatic reading of one thing in particular <clears throat> the year is 1969 and we landed on the moon. And then in 1970, the moon was sad. 1977, we sent Voyager. In 96, we sent the Mars rover and the moon was really sad. <laughs> I love that you're reading important. a visual article. And then 2022, we it's were like saying so loud. We kept on chanting to the moon, to the moon, to the moon. The moon thought we were talking about it guys like that was kind of rude but by 2025 we made it and we put a bitcoin flag on the moon yay good for us if you want to actually enjoy this comic if you want to actually enjoy some of the incredible articles that are written in this magazine if you want to see max kaiser and president bukele in this picture right here buy your buy a copy of the print mag use promo code fomo get 10 percent off subscribe because the freedom issue is coming very very soon oh bitcoin day charlotte if you're in the area, go check it out. That's a wrap. That's a wrap. Cool. Stay humble. Stack sets. Do it. Adios. Bye, everyone. <laughs>